0: Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt.
0: We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships.
1: If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place.
0: Here we go. November 6th is coming right up, Sherry. And you know what that means. Yes
1: the open session to The Developing Story.
0: The Developing Story, our writing group for teens who have experienced alcoholism in their household. I never know how to say that exactly, because if you say teens who have experienced alcoholism, it sounds like it's only for teens who have uh, consumed too much alcohol to the point where they cross the line into addiction. And while those people would be welcome, that's not the target audience. This is for people who have lived in a family like ours, for instance, um, where they have had to grow up with alcoholism in the house. So that's what it's all about. That's why it's called The Developing Story, because, you know, they're teens. They're kind of on the young side. Mm-hmm. Led by our daughter, Catherine, who is 21, much closer to being a teenager than you or I. And The, uh, de- the Developing Story sessions are going well, sparsely populated, if I'm being honest. But uh, they're getting a lot out of it and enjoying writing. Um, And so uh, on November 6th, we have a session that doesn't require full enrollment. All you have to do is express the most entry-level amount of interest, and you are welcome. And we're going to welcome on the November 6th edition, which will be at 4.30 Mountain Time, um, we are going to welcome 4.30 p.m. Mountain Time. We're going to welcome not just the writers, the teens themselves, but the parents can sit in as well, which is not the normal course of business. We don't normally have parents on the calls and and you and I aren't on the calls, but you and I will be on this one and parents are welcome as well. And people who just wanna stick their toe in the water and check it out are welcome to join us. for yeah. to express that entry level amount of interest and just uh, get the Zoom link for that initial call, please go to thedevelopingstory.org At the bottom of that information page is an enrollment form. It's pretty fancy enrollment form. You have to put your name and your email both in there. That's uh, the full extent of the enrollment form. Um, But once we get your email address, we will reach back out and make sure you have the Zoom link for November 6th, The Developing Story. Hope to see lots of our uh, intoxicated podcast listeners uh, making that initial session, not initial session, but an initial open session uh, to give it a try. Sherry, this is part two of two, uh, a topic that uh, is really an important one, something that we talked about on episode 213 last week. We're going to talk about detachment when detachment goes all the way to separation and what that looks like. The first episode that we did 213 on this topic was just me and you. And really, it was my own really therapy session. It was my My opportunity to dive into my own, what's that? Talk more. (laughs) Hey, I look at you and I'm like, I'm giving the hand signal and you're like, whatever. I got nothing. Keep talking, monkey. So don't act like. Okay. Okay. But yeah, your own therapy session. Yeah, it was my own therapy session to deal with the hypocrisy that I feel like I, I show, I demonstrate in that you and I, in my 25 years of heavy drinking and my 10 years of active addiction, never experienced a physical separation. We never even moved into different bedrooms, which is a great first start if you're considering separation, by the way. Mm-hmm. But so I hear I talk about the importance of detachment and how it's the only thing that has a chance to succeed, and how separation, we shouldn't look at that as the end all, be all, end of the marriage. You know, separation means we'll never speak to each other again. Separation can be very therapeutic. And I talk like that, but yet we and I never did it. Right. So if you are sitting, if you didn't listen to episode 213, if you skipped over that one and you're like, you're such a hypocrite, Matt, shut up. Go back and listen to 213 before you listen to this one, episode 214.
1: So you can call it like an emotional separation and a physical separation, I think is how we can kind of describe that. Like, because I emotionally remove myself from a lot of your twisted feelings like I no longer invested my emotions in to what you had to say I would listen with a blank stare on my face sometimes and it would go in over my head or in one ear out the other however you want to say it I guess over your my head means like it was too lofty of an idea yeah sometimes your
0: they, ears were just closed yeah you were just, just looking at my lips to see when they stopped moving
1: yeah So it was an emotional separation in this this week. We're going to talk about physical separations.
0: Yeah, we had an emotional separation, but we are proponents of physical separation in certain circumstances and when when it's the right fit for that particular couple. And we're going to talk about it. It's not just going to be me and you talking about it. We Mm -hmm. have a wonderful roundtable panel of five people that we've gotten to know and love and as they've worked through their recovery as the loved ones of alcoholics. And what's really cool about this panel that we've brought together today is we have very different experiences with separation. And I think that's, that's a really important point. We, we just earlier today had a, a video call where someone made the point that there is no one way to do this. There is no playbook. And that applies to everything recovery related. There are just too many variables While we talk a lot about universalisms, there are these little details that are different in different people's situations. And so we can't sit here and say, you need to do this. You need to separate for six months and here's how it should look and then everything will be fine. And, you know, a caution, if you if you are listening to someone in the recovery community that's telling you they've got the playbook and and they've got the one size fits all solution to every problem. um, I'd, I'd probably stop listening to that person because that's not how it works and so we've got five different examples of how they have um you know used separation as part of their experience and five different outcomes as well and so without any further ado let's jump right into to meeting our panel nicole i'm hoping to bring you in first um can you talk about you know what precipitated the need for Uh, separation what that separation looked like for you and where you are now you know uh, you know following the separation basically please sure
2: so um my husband was a closet drinker um i mean once i discovered his alcoholism a couple years ago then he took to hiding it when he relapsed um and when i found it he he did his own research to decide he needed to go to rehab. Um, we both kind of knew based on my threats, (laughs) I will call them from years before that this was going to lead to divorce. Um, that was where I was at the time. And so anyway, he checked himself into a 30 day facility. Um, thus began our physical separation, uh, in the beginning, I intended to let him move back home into a different room just while we figured out, you know, went through the course of what to do next. Um, where I live, there is not a a legal separation. There's just a requirement of 60-day waiting period after you file for divorce. And so, you know, it, it wasn't, I wasn't worried about that aspect of it, making it legal or anything. Um, but while he was away, he started um Bombarding me with the things he was learning, with um, how you know it's not his fault, his brain was diseased, and all of this stuff. And while you know I definitely believe it's it is a disease that the addiction is it is a disease. There's also choices that an individual makes and in how they treat someone when they are suffering from this disease, and that's where my problem was. And so the more he forced those things on me that he was learning, the more distant I became. And to, by the time the end of those 30 days was up, I said, you, you can't come home. I, I can't have you in this house. I don't want to see your face every day. Like, I'm not doing this. Um, so he found a place to live. Um,
0: was he surprised and... by that, Nicole? Did he expect big, open, loving arms at the end of the rehab?
2: I don't know if he was surprised. I know he was hopeful, especially as, you know, in, in rehab, the way they were telling him, you know, like it's... And I I think, I mean, I think they say a lot to try to get the addict to believe that they can be sober by telling them it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And that's fine. You know, but then (laughs) what is your fault is what you've done to your family. Like, yes, that's still his fault. Um, so I I think, I think he was hopeful, but I don't think he really expected, um, anything different. I'm not sure, but, um, anyway so he found another place to live um, the first month out of rehab was awful um, because he kept coming at me and I was not I didn't want to hear anything that he had to say and he just wanted so desperately to prove how you know clean he was now um we stayed physically separated living in different places um, until for about three months, um, three and a half months, I guess. I had an instance with, um, one of our children where it just kind of became that I needed someone in the house, um, to help me. And he had been showing through his actions and by backing off of the, the things he was learning and you know, kind of just showing rather than telling me, um, where I felt like it was safe to have him move home again. So I invited him to move home uh, into a separate bedroom. And that's where we are now. Um, We tried, we've gone on a couple of dates um, because I was feeling like we could start working towards reconciliation. Um, He had kind of a behavioral relapse recently. I don't know if you want me to go ahead and get into that, but um, it set me back quite a bit in my desire to heal the relationship um because even though he is sober five months sober tomorrow i he still treated me the way he had before and i didn't feel safe again with him and so you know now we're just kind of like sober but not i'm not ready to move forward with any kind of reconciliation so it's it's more of like a we're roommates i guess right now and it's it's a cordial pleasant roommate. You know, i care about each other and becoming better now, but, um, but I don't see us advancing beyond that anytime soon. I'm nowhere near ready.
0: It's so interesting to me. We hear so many people talk about while their alcoholic spouse is in rehab, that is just a really tangible, like you can feel the changes in your body because the the fight or flight leaves your nervous system for the first time you're not constantly on eggshells and you know worried about what's going to happen next and we hear a lot of people that talk about oh my gosh it was a 30-day rehab 30 days is not enough and that's not 30 days is not enough from the perspective of the drinker getting sober it's 30 days is not enough from the perspective of the loved one who's started to find peace and started to regulate their nervous system. So I'm I'm wondering when you, pardon me, uh, said you can't come home, you've got to find an alternative living situation and you stayed separated. So that was a basically three months in that situation, right? So about four months total. Okay. So yeah. um, what did that do for you nervous system wise? I mean, I know, He needed to stop. I I think your word choice was super fascinating. You talked about him bombarding you with the things he was learning and he was forcing things on you. I mean, I think those are, the choice of those words is very important for our listeners to absorb. But when that stopped and he started showing rather than telling, what did that allow you to do from a healing perspective?
2: So that kind of came about shortly after I found Echoes. So the timing was really good, I guess. (laughs) Uh, I don't want to say coincidental, but um, it it, uh, can't think of the right word. um, That he recognized in his healing and I actually began to move forward in my own healing. Um, I had been stuck in the, the survival mode, especially during rehab. And then the first couple of weeks after, you know, it was the guard way up, you know, this crazy person who now thinks he has all the answers to all the world is coming at me all the time. And I, um, I was exhausted. And so as that, his part stopped, the bombardment stopped, and then I was able to start learning, that I wasn't crazy that there are other people out there going through what I've been through and that, you know, all the things that echoes has done for me with uh, sisterhood of people who, who offer advice and have a trusting ear. Um, it just has allowed me to take a breath and think about what it is that I want and what I need to feel safe and to feel sane. Um, Yes, I don't think that answered.
0: No, that's great. I have a good friend that I write with that would call that timing of finding echoes of recovery at the same time as peace was entering your uh, your living situation. You would call that serendipitous.
2: Yes, um, that's what, the word I was looking for. <laughs>
0: there we go. I do want to defend your husband just from the standpoint of the universality. universe. Out. it's so common <laughs> Get that it's so common that when we first start learning about addiction we the drinkers um, and there is a tremendous amount of relief to learn the brain chemistry piece and understand i'm not just the black sheep of the family i don't just have crappy willpower i'm not just a bad person to want to share that and of course the people you want to share it with are the people closest to you but the people closest to you are also the ones that have received the most damage from your actions. And even when we get to the point, as Sherry and I have talked many times about, where we're blaming the alcohol or blaming the addiction and not blaming me anymore, early on, that is a hard concept to understand. And these are words that are still coming out of the same mouth of the same person who is saying those mean things. And so that bombardment and that thing's being forced on you super common. I'm not defending him from the standpoint of saying it's the right move. I'm just saying it's very, very universal. And so how you handled what you were experiencing, demanding the extended um, separation seems to have worked really well. And then the fact that you are still in a place where, um, you know, like you described, you're still roommates. Um, you're, You're counting the time in this recovery process in months at this point, not in years. And that might be Hard for a lot of our listeners to hear, but you're right where you should be. You're right where um, you need to be, I think. Um, so, uh, thank you for sharing the 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 separation part of your story. We really appreciate it, Nicole. Lisa, you have a, a different experience with separation. We'd love to to hear your story.
3: I do. Thank you, Matt and Sherry, for inviting me to this, to allow me to share my story and for supporting me through all the past few months. Um, it's It's been emotional, but it's been good. Um, you said Nicole is in the few months process. Well, I'm certainly more new than she is. I've only been in this for a few weeks. So for anyone who's looking for long-term stories, I don't have that to share yet. Um, My story is my husband and I have been together for 25 years. We love each other. We've been through everything in life together. And um, about 20 years of that has been progressively heavy drinking. Um, The drinking has caused emotional separation, emotional distrust, and it's caused erratic behavior at home to the point where... The person who's my best friend, I no longer can predict how they're going to respond to whether uh, to situations, whether they're minor situations or major situations. It just took away my feeling of safety and partnership over time. And that's devastating to go through um, as a wife and a mother. Um, The emotional separation is one thing that you deal with in quiet, hoping it goes away or hoping you can find a way to work around it or figure out a solution. Um, But the reality is, as I've been realizing that the drinking itself got in the way of us communicating effectively and honestly with each other. It got in the way of us expressing our desires, our passions, our dreams for the future. And there's nowhere to go when that happens except apart. It got to the point where he was obviously frustrated. I was obviously frustrated. And home was no longer a pleasant place to be. I'd walk in the door and I had no idea what situation we'd be in, whether he was drinking or not. I didn't know if he was going to be kind or upset. I didn't know if there was going to be um, some kind of an explosion or there was going to be love. I just had no idea. And that is an exhausting, exhausting life to live. Um, Especially we have children and knowing that I'm trying to buffer the children from any of the unpredictable or adverse effects, uh, it got to be really, really tiring. And I realized that, as you've described, I was definitely living on eggshells. Um, And ironically, I have a high-stress job, but I was never stressed at work. I knew exactly how people were going to respond. I knew what to expect. And that was wonderfully calming for me. And I really desired just to create that at home. For me and my kids, I'm a very enthusiastic, passionate person. And I realized over time that that sparkle, that shine that I had had been dimming. I had been putting that to rest because I was so spent living life with a high level of adrenaline. Um, it wasn't good for my health. It wasn't good for my sanity, excuse me. It wasn't good for my mental state and it wasn't good for our kids. So I spent past few years doing everything I could to keep a calm environment at home, to keep us together for the sake of the kids. And then my kids came to me separately and said, mom, this is really hard. We're seeing how dad's acting. We're not liking it. And I couldn't ignore it anymore. Once I knew that it was having an effect on them, despite how hard I was working to try to protect them from it, I realized I needed to create a place of safety for them and for me. It had to be a safe, secure environment that we could retreat to anytime he was erratic or unpredictable. And I owed that to them and I owed it to me. Um, And that was probably the most terrifying decision and step I've ever made in my life Um, as an adult. It's the first decision, major decision I'd made without his input, um, which was very scary, Um, but I did it. And I had asked him several months prior that if he was going to be either acting erratically or drinking to find another place to stay. And he had said, no, he would not do that. He would not leave our home. So I knew that it left it to me to find a solution, to find a place of safety. And so I did. About a month ago, I rented a house in the same town, same school district for the kids, Um, talked with them very openly about having a safe place to go when things get tense at home, giving dad some time to calm down, to learn how to process his disappointments or his anger to give him some time and space to learn some coping mechanisms um, which they all agreed was a very good thing my intent was never divorce it was never to leave him but it was to provide us with a place that was comfortable and safe to be when we needed to reclaim and regroup um, ourselves Um, after about a week first week was terrible i'll admit it was i was all over the place did i do the right thing did i not Um, We're separated. This feels chaotic for me, for the kids. Um, And after about a week, I started to calm down. And my nervous system was relaxed. And I was sleeping well. And I was reading books. And I was having fun and laughing with the kids. And I was back to my old self. And I thought, oh, my goodness, if one week of physical space can cause this much healing within me to allow me to be my best self for my kids, then no matter what the outcome is, this is worth it. Luckily for me, um, me moving out was the wake-up call he needed. He said, I was not hearing you before. I did not take you seriously. And because I was in such a calm space without adrenaline, I was able to communicate very clearly without emotion, with compassion, back to him, which I may not have been able to do very well living in that high-adrenaline environment. And it's been going great. We probably are communicating better than we ever have. It's been a month. Um, the kids relationships with him are improving. Um, we're both doing counseling. We have date nights. Um, we're just enjoying getting to know each other again. And I know for me, if it starts to get tense or uncomfortable, I can withdraw. I have a place I can go to be safe, put myself on an even playing ground, get my best self back and then come back at the situation. So for me, separation was not so much about divorce. It was about reclaiming my best self so that I could work with him and getting his attention um, towards building a new future for us because we were on a path that was going to lead to nothing but divorce otherwise.
0: I think the vast majority of the perceptions as it relates to separation are either that it's step one toward divorce or I should say and or it is about you know an ultimatum it is about pushing the drinker to to take it seriously and potentially sober up and as is the case for you and for many people it it does have that impact but i like the way you told the story and i know the way you have experienced this that was a side effect this wasn't just about being an ultimatum or a threat or an intervention this was about you finding what you needed to heal yourself and to protect your kids. And I think if people go into this decision about whether or not to separate with that in mind, this is about me. Whatever happens with the drinker is what happens with the drinker. I hope for the best. I pray for the best. I still love this person. But this has got to be about me. And then the way you describe the benefits you know, after that first week, um, it's just remarkable and and so important um you know you talked about the fact that this is the first major decision that you've made without your husband i think it's really important for us to point out to our listeners that you know we know a lot about what your work work responsibilities are you know you have a lot of responsibilities outside of the house you have a stressful job you have accountability you have lots of decisions that you're making so it's not like you know, you don't experience the stress of decision-making in your life at all. This is on a personal level. It's just different. And so um, it doesn't matter if if you are responsible for the household and that's where your decision-making is, or if it's career-related, it's different when it comes to making a decision about your family, your kids, your own sanity. And I, I just want to highlight that because I don't want someone to, to to think, oh, I make I make important decisions every day. This this should be easy for me or the reverse of that. I, you know, I, I my career is such that I don't make big life altering decisions every day. Unrelated, completely unrelated. Doesn't matter mm-hmm. what your your outside well, of the house work experience is.
1: And we don't get married. So we just are so independent. We don't need the other person. Yeah, I mean, we get right. married and we have partnerships. Or, you know, or not get married if we have partnerships. So then we can feel like we have somebody that we can bounce those ideas off of and you can talk Mm -hmm. through with. So even if there isn't, you know, big decision, small decision, whatever it is, your partner has been hopefully influential if the relationship is good. And when it gets to that scary point, I mean, I can't even imagine like how hard it was to have your kids come to you separately to say, this isn't working for us. Mm -hmm. That would just rip me apart. And I'm sure it did you. Absolutely, Sherry. It was devastating.
3: Um, My kids are in middle school. And when they said, "Um, dad is really struggling and this is what he's done. And I don't really want to be around him. um, I was devastated because I thought I had hidden them from the worst of him. And I've said through this whole thing, what I want more than anything is not to reconcile our marriage, not to create this dream life. I want them to see him as their best father. I want the best version of him to be available and front and center for them because that's what they deserve. And so he was not being his best self and that required action. Um, I never said you have to stop drinking. I never said you have to do these things. I said, if I feel unsafe or if the kids and I need a break, we are going to the other house and there's no discussion to be had about it. Um, And then we've started talking about with space how to get him to his best self, how to take away some of these flaws that the kids are seeing, how we as parents can model conflict management, anger, um, negative things that come up in life. We're trying to, I'm, I'm really trying to get us to model successful adulthood for them and they're seeing it. And we're talking very openly about it with them and they all notice he's doing better. And so very hard discussions to have, um, very humbling but I am been surprised and pleased on how resilient my kids have been.
0: Modeling adulthood for them. I love that. That's, that's a great way to describe it. Thank you very much, Lisa, Sarah, Thank you, Sarah, come on into the discussion. We would like to, we'd love to hear your experience with separation. What's it been like for mm-hmm.
4: you? So our separation happened, um, kind of dramatically. Um, I, I didn't know what I was dealing with. I didn't know it was alcoholism. Um, we'd been married for two years, um, together for two years before that. And then, um, about two and a half years into our marriage, we had our first child. And that was when I started noticing like, this is different than normal drinking. Um, you know, I would drink with him, but, um, But then when I was pregnant, I was not drinking and I was like, okay, this is not normal. Um, But I still didn't know it was alcoholism. You know, it's, it's a high functioning alcoholism and it's very normal and and normalized in society. Um, And so, you know, for about a year and a half, I didn't, didn't know what I was dealing with. Um, We had a second child um, a year later. Um, So two babies very quickly. Um, And then COVID hit. Um, You know, I think, again, Matt, like you said, like serendipity, like this all happened perfectly so that I could find out what was going on. Um, But COVID hit. And so my husband and I were both in in our home together all the time for a few months. And I then got to to watch the drinking happen. Um, And so I... I kind of slowly put the pieces together of like, okay, there's something really wrong. Like, what is it? Um, When I realized it was alcoholism, um, I thought that telling him would help him also realize it was alcoholism. Um, And when I did that, um, you know, I had two very small children. And so we, we left Our home, and went to my parents' house. Um, And during that time, I was hoping to get him help. Um, And his denial kicked kicked in, um, you know, and and came at me pretty hard. Um, So I was um, was on maternity leave, and um, was was needing to come back to our home. to go back to work and, um, you know, had to kind of negotiate with him of what are we gonna do? Like, I honestly could not see myself living in this home again with him. Um, It had been very, very hard to live with him, mainly because of our children and our safety. Um, You know, it was constant drinking and, and, and he wanted to be in our home with us and wanted to be helping me with the kids. And I, I was like, I can, I cannot put my children in this situation. Um, and you know, I would see him trying to, like, once he, once he was in a drunken state, there was no going back. There was no arguing on my point or my part. Like it, it was just like full on, you know, not stopping. And um, I knew at that point, like, I could not live with him again. And my children are not safe living with him. Um. So after a bunch of negotiation, you know, him threatening divorce, um, that if I didn't come back, you know, he would divorce me. That you know, all of this stuff, all of these threats. Um. He eventually moved out. Um. And our kids and I, or my kids and myself, moved back into the home alone. Um so, uh, that was three and a half years ago. Um, and he's still not living with us and he's still not sober. Um, but, um, my kids and I are in a much better place. And during that time, you know, I've sought my own therapy, um, you know, kind of figured out my own childhood wounds and, um, started parenting my kids completely differently than we were parented. Um, so, you know, I feel like the healing process for me and for my kids has been a complete, complete lifestyle change. Um, and we would, you know, I, I don't know that I'd even be here if we were still in the situation of living with him for those three and a half years. Um, and and I think, you know, we're still married. Um, my relationship with him has gotten way different also. Um we're not, I would say, like in a relationship, but I'm able to stand up to him. I'm able to, you know, put my foot down when I see something happening that's not right, which I couldn't have done before. I I was I was just very scared um, of him. And and, you know, I think he had a lot of control over me that I really had no idea, um, no idea that I was living in a, an abusive environment. Um but because of everything that I've done, I, I've really turned the turned the wheel and kind of gotten off the miracle miracle round, as they say, and healed ourselves, uh, myself, and my my children. And um, and he's he's kind of come along the way, like he hasn't left. Um, which makes me sad. Um, but you know, he stayed. The whole time. And I can see that he wants to change, um, but I don't think he knows how yet. So I'm still hopeful that he will.
0: It's a process. It's a long-term process for sure. How much interaction does he have with the kids?
4: Um, so I think because of this, he has an amazing relationship with our children that he would not have had before. Um, you know, he's here multiple days a week, Um, My kids adore him, which, you know, I think had had this not happened, had I not realized what it was like, they would have also been scared of him um, and not be able to have a relationship with him. And and I think because of this, like, you know, he doesn't know, but I've given him this awesome gift of having a great relationship with his kids.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. How much do you think that initial separation just because you were on maternity leave and you had the freedom to spend that time with your parents, how much do you think that kind of informed your decision-making and made you realize that this was the right move longer term?
4: Yeah. So during that time, I, um, I had a coworker who was um, 35 years in AA and um, he was the person who really helped me realize like, this is a serious problem. Like you are not the problem. Alcohol is the problem. Um, And I would, you know, check in with him daily and be like, okay, is it me? Is it not me? Like, I feel like it's just me. He's like, no, it's not you. Um, So during that time, I was able to really kind of flip my mindset and realize that like, this was a serious problem that I could not go back to. And like, if I went back to it, I felt like I would never get out. Um, I think it had to happen.
0: You are not the problem. Alcohol is the problem. Such an important message that I I think so many people in these relationships don't get. I know you Sherry spent a lot of time considering because I would gaslight you and I would tell you, this is all your fault. This is all your fault. You're a bad wife. You suck at this. Um, You can't help but wonder if there's truth in that. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know it allowed me to keep on drinking. Every every minute that I tried to convince you, it was actually your fault. So that's a very relatable experience. It's an unconventional setup, but one that's really working for you. And I want to applaud you for that. And so I don't want this question to sound like I'm second guessing you because I'm not at all. I think it's great. I think it's fantastic. But it is unconventional enough. And I'm wondering, do you get people that are asking, why don't you just divorce him? Is that something that you have had to address? And maybe you're sick of addressing yeah.
4: Um, not so much anymore. Cause I think most people it's been three and a half years. So most people are just kind of like, Oh, that's the status quo over there. But, um, but yes, for a long time, you know, and I, I'm sure people still wonder, and I spent a lot of time like second guessing myself. Um, but, you know, I, I also go to Al-Anon and I follow the um, one day at a time and I'm like, You know, one day I will know that I want to make a different decision, but right now this is working.
0: That's great. I'm so excited for you and proud of you that you have the confidence in that, despite the fact that it's unconventional, because, um, you know, if it's working, that's great. And the whole, uh, you'll know when you know thing that we say a lot, so true. And if this is the situation that's right for right now, that's great. And if there's a change needed, you'll know that eventually. Yep. Thank you very much, Sarah. Shannon, you have had a really tumultuous, traumatic, challenging last six months or so. Can you talk to us about what separation has been like for you?
5: Um, so it's actually been a little longer than that because our first separation was um, September of last year. Okay. Um, I think that's when I, around the time when I first joined Echoes, um, and we were doing like a trial separation, um, because the addiction and the behaviors going along with the addiction were just getting, um, like scary. Um, it, the aggression was increasing, um, the um, the lying, the gaslighting, the way he would talk to me, the way he would treat me was just getting worse and worse. And, um, the, uh, reason I, I ended up leaving that time was because of an aggressive incident. And, um, you know, I, I struggle with the whole, um, is it was it bad enough thing and I think um that things got so bad that night that it was it was just kind of an immediate I'm out of here um not really even putting much more thought to it than that and I left and luckily had a place to stay and I was out of the house for about four months and um because my husband I think who was that Nicole or Lisa one of you had said that your husbands wouldn't leave and my husband was very much like that I had asked him several times more than I can count um if he could just leave and uh he wouldn't um so it was up to me to get myself out of there to sort of save myself um we don't have children in the mix um So that, um, you know, we don't have that added um, complication, I guess. Um, But uh, so I left and we still communicated a fair amount during that time. I wonder sometimes looking back if I should have gone a little more no contact, because I think that he really hung on to the fact that, um, you know, while I wasn't physically there, I was still like emotionally in it. And I would hear things from him, like if if you know he would he he needed to talk to me every day, he needed to have some sort of conversation with me every single day, um, and uh, so yeah, I he it's joined a twelve
0: step. What what did you need, Shannon? I'm very very curious because yeah. your husband's a lot like me. I would not have left you know under any circumstances and i would have needed that daily contact but was it just irritating to you was it fingernails on the chalkboard to have to talk to him every day
5: yes very much so um i i did not need that i didn't want it um i didn't want to hear what he had to say um i i i needed the separation i needed the nervous system regulation and part of that was just being separated from him. Um, But I felt like while I was physically separated from him, I wasn't really separated from him. Mm -hmm. I was still in the mix. Um, And, you know, he was saying all the right things and, you know, telling me all the things that he was doing and um, everything sounded very positive. Um, And I could, you know, I could see some changes in him that made me think that things were headed in the right direction. And um, we started spending more time together. We were doing like a little bit of date nights here and there. I started um, going back home and spending some time there. Um, I I also suffer from chronic pain and autoimmune diseases and things like that. So me being out of my home was really physically like a struggle for me. Um, I had to move about an hour and a half away. I, you know, it was difficult for me to, um, do my appointments for my, like my medical appointments and things like that. Um, so there was like a strong pull for me to just get back home. Um, and as things seemed to be progressing in the right way, um, I did go back. Um, that was just before Christmas of last year. Um, and then between then and when I left in May, um, I mean everything was just a total lie. <laughs> um, everything that had I'd, I'd been told wasn't true. Um, you know, he was still drinking, hiding it. Um, he was stealing my prescription, pain medications. He mm. was um, talking to other women um, uh, which escalated into more affairs. infidelities um yeah and then uh you know you guys in echo's group i kept hearing that we just talked about it that whole you know you'll know when you know and i always thought like what the heck does that mean Mm -hmm. like what does that mean and the night um that i found out about another affair um um, you know, it was like a combination of all the things like he's not quitting drinking. He's continuing to lie to me. He's stealing my medications. He's cheating on me. He's like, it's just, and, 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 and I went to bed that night with him passed out drunk beside me. Um, and I woke up in the morning and he was already, you know, down in his office. And I just walked right down there and said, um, I want a divorce like i'm just done i'm just done Mm -hmm. and um we tried to uh live in the house together um while we figured out the separation and everything i think that lasted maybe a week or two um and you know i i only had two asks of him and that was you know don't come home when you're intoxicated, and don't bring other women into our house, and he couldn't, he couldn't follow that. So mm. I had to, I had to get out. I had to, for my own sanity, my own physical well-being. Um, yeah. So packed that, up and that, left.
0: That last little tidbit, I think, answers my question, which is, you know, so you'll know when you know, and you had that epiphany moment and you got up and you walked down and you told him, and then I was going to ask, did you ever have any regrets or second guesses? But it sounds like he was driving nails in the coffin as hard as he could there, um, in the, 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 weeks that followed.
5: Yeah. It's crazy though, because there's like two parts of me right now, this part that just, um, hates him for the amount of betrayal and hurt. That he has caused, and then there's this other side that's just so filled with guilt. Like I didn't do enough. I didn't do it right. Um, I gave up. Um, all of those things. Um, so it's this. It's like a fight inside of me every single day to know whether or not um, I did the right thing. You know, he's still um, very much not sober. And um, so, and, and I feel like it would have been the same if I had stayed too, right? So, yeah.
0: Well, I can assure you that we have listeners that are screaming at their speakers right now saying you did more than enough. The things that you were experiencing warranted every action that you took and the fact that you tried and held on for as long as you could and did so many different iterations of trying is just a testament to how important your marriage was to you and what a strong person you are. But there's no question that you did every, I mean, it's an Al-Anon thing. We talk about it on this podcast. There's just no controlling another human. And um, there's no action you could have taken that would have been the, 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 you know, the one perfect magic thing to, to, to change the outcome. Um, And so I think your story is very important. And I'm really glad that you're willing to share it because we don't want to come on and make it sound like separation is this Pollyanna thing. Um, Yes, it helps with nervous system regulation. Yes, it can allow you find the peace to heal yourself. But it doesn't necessarily result in the response that you're expecting from the spouse. I mean, I think we've We've heard four stories so far and we're 50-50 on whether the alcoholics stopped drinking. And I've never written it down or done the math, but I bet in all the cases that we've heard of, that's about, that's about right. About half the time it has that impact and half the time it just doesn't. And so I really applaud you for uh, coming to that decision point and making it and sticking with it. And I know it's been a tremendously difficult, you know, just because you made the decision, you stuck to it doesn't make it easy. Um, can you talk about what the transition has been these last several months? It, It, you know, what have you gone through personally?
5: Um, yeah, so I'm just staying with a friend and, um, I, my cat, my dog here with me and, uh, I don't have any of my things. I have like personal things, you know, clothes and things like that, but actually tonight we're going to pick up some things because, um, we're, I mean, we're on six months now and I feel like, um, he, he's really been stalling with getting this, um, uh, separation agreement figured out. Um, he's in our house. Uh, he, yeah, it's, um, I, I, I'm very up and down. Some days I'm like, I got this. (laughs) And other days it's a struggle. Um, because this, you know, this wasn't what I wanted. I mean, I'm sure you all feel the same. This is not what I wanted. Um, uh, I struggle too with, um, like still all of my medical appointments and things are back an hour and a half away. Um, I, um, yeah, I think just the mental piece, the, um, my, with my physical health too, it's just, it's a lot. Um, I'm really grateful for the echoes group. Um, even though I, I struggle sometimes to reach out for the help, like I'm one of those people that just, I, I have a hard time asking for help. So, um, I think that this has been a bit of a lifeline for me. Um, finding this group and having people to talk to and connect to. Um yeah, yeah, I'm thankful for like my family and friends who are so supportive and um who've let me stay in their house. And um yeah, so
0: well you said it just a minute ago. It's a lot. And so if you're in an in-between period and you feel like you haven't made enough progress, I mean I'm here to tell you and I know our listeners would agree. Um, what you have been through these last six months is it's traumatic. It's a ton and just give yourself as much grace as you can to work through it. And you'll, you'll definitely land on your feet. And we're really blessed that you're willing to come on and, and share such a tough story. Thank you for being here, here, Shannon. You know, we've gone from Lisa who self admittedly said she is new at this to uh, Sarah has three and a half years in this particular situation. And Kelly, I wanted to separate you and Lisa with a couple of stories because you two are very new at this. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to just give some context and texture to the discussion. So let's let's come back to a relatively new separation story. Kelly, tell us what's going on.
6: Yeah, so um, my husband actually just moved out like Sunday. So, we are days into this. Um, but I would say that this is a problem that has been going on for years. And part of not knowing is me. I mean, we've we went to a very well-known party school together. Um, and of course, we we partied, we did the things you did in your 20s, and then, like so many women, I got pregnant. And I also, you know, like you, Sherry, couldn't handle the hangovers and the getting up with a young child. And so I really pulled back on the alcohol, of that and just a family history, a strong family history of alcoholism. It just wasn't my thing anymore. Um, my husband did not, um, loves to drink beer. So that became um, something that seemed fine for a long time. And then you start to see things, little things. Um, And I want to make it very, very clear that what has been so hard for me and the denial piece for me has been that I've been waiting or had been waiting for the DWI, the um, job loss, the physical abuse. I waited. I I figured there's no drinking in the morning you know, this can't be a problem. So for years and years and years of that, and then being told this isn't a problem, I'm just relaxing after work or when I'm out doing yard work, I like to have a few beers during the day and all of these explanations that kept me going for so long. So we have been married for 21 years and I just yesterday was going back through my my letters to him because the conversations got really bad. And I didn't know at the time that they got bad because of, you know, gaslighting manipulation, trying to protect that addiction. But I went through the letters and they are, you know, seven, six, seven years old. And I don't know if it's, I needed to convince myself what was going on. And that took so long. And Echoes was part of that. Just listening, even just now, all of your stories, there's a piece that I take from each one. and it's so helpful to understand what is going on and essentially in terms of the separation what happens is i mean i hit rock bottom i hit rock bottom i had a december where i was not i was having trouble getting out of bed I was speaking with a therapist who just didn't get addiction like she just didn't have that so i saw myself deteriorating in a way that was not okay and I thought to myself, well, so do I have to wait for him to hit rock bottom? And why can't my telling him I'm not sleeping, I'm not I'm struggling so hard and he's still continuing to drink? At what point there do I just need to keep punishing myself? How long does that pain have to continue until I say, "Listen, I love you, but I love me too." And I have got to do something like I can't continue to live like this. And it was also the piece of pretending it's okay. Like every single night became a trigger for me. And we talk about safety and my husband has never laid a hand on me. He's a kind human being. But when every evening you are making dinner going, what am I getting at the table tonight? Is he going to be talking a ton? Not asking the kids questions, just talk, 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 talk. I mean, I know my husband when he's drunk or buzzed, and it's always a trigger. So every night was just get through dinner, Kelly. Get through dinner. You can do this. You can do this. Then you'll do the dishes. You'll fall asleep. Whatever. You'll you'll get through it. What kind of life is that? And at the end of the day, every day that doing that piece to yourself takes a toll. It just destroys you. And so did I ever have the, oh my God, this is it moment. And I mean, like Shannon, you talk about the infidelity or this, you know, the stealing or, you know, those moments of, oh my God, no, I didn't. It's been a slow death of myself. And so what I had to do was say, I love you. You have to, and thankfully he agreed to move out. I said, I need some peace. I need some space. And then even describing that to the kids was horrific because in my case, the drinking was done out, you know, things were kind of kept uh, you know, in the garage or away. So the kids may not have noticed or have understood that piece of it. So that was another painful part. And you know, even we are texting recently and there were I loves you, I love you's exchanged, but you know, like I had sent a text saying, do you want to talk? And that was ignored all night. And like, at some point I cannot continue to be punished. I cannot continue to be the one who you don't believe the one who is wrong. I have to just have space. You know, as you've all said, the nervous system regulation is, is critical and just taking time away from this, taking time away. Um, so what's going to happen from here? That's anyone's guess. I love him, as I've said, he's the love of my life. But I don't have a life if he doesn't figure it out. So that's where we are. Where we are.
0: I love you, but I love me too. Those were really, really profound words, and the fact that you acknowledged that for yourself is really, really important. I'm curious because there's a piece of, there's lots of pieces of your story that are similar to Sherry and I, but one of them is that you partied together at a party school. And then when you had kids, you were the one that actually changed. Now the, uh, the words that we use to describe that change is mature, responsible, like it's a good change. And we're supposed to change as we move through life. But I, as the drinker often argued You're the one changing, not me. Um, I, you know, I signed on for this marriage in a certain way and I'm holding up my end of the bargain. You're the one screwing this up. Did you hear any of that? And is that part of what kept you stuck?
6: Absolutely. One thousand percent. And in fact, it became a lot of look at these other couples. I mean, I'll never forget the comment to me. My good friend and his wife share a glass of like drink wine at night. Like, let me be very clear. I enjoy a glass of wine here and there with everything that's been going on in my house. If I go out with a girlfriend, absolutely. I don't not enjoy alcohol. I am not that angry about that piece of it, but it was, I'm just unwinding. Why, why? And even coming to him to talk about it, it'd be like, oh, this again. It's like, no, no. This again, because this is something. This has to change. And I think when you understand the progressive nature of alcoholism, it opens your eyes so wide to the fact that things are deteriorating. Our connection, our connection is gone. It is gone. And it is because alcohol will pull you apart. You cannot seem, when you're feeling triggers and you're annoyed and you just can't get there, it's not because you're not fun. It's because you've been drinking For too long, it's gotten too bad. And you need to change. You need to grow up. It's you. I'm sorry, but it is.
0: Yeah. I know it's been less than a week, but have you noticed changes in yourself from a nervous system standpoint or the kids? Is the is the mood different in the house?
6: You know, it was funny. I heard something, and I can't remember what the podcast was, but what number it was, but it was talking about how um the common spaces in the home, how it changes that piece. And I noticed that the kids in just these few days like have come down or we have just a, more of a a, a breather in the house. Um, and some of that I wouldn't say is necessarily him. it's It's me because I'm high anxiety when he's around. And he may be just seeming perfectly fine to them, but there's me and I'm reacting to the vibe that I'm getting from you or how I feel about what you're doing. And then the kids are feeling that as well. And so at the end of the day, I mean, I, it's interesting. I was on a walk with my youngest the other night and um, they started asking me some questions about what's going on here. And it was so healthy and it felt so good to be completely honest. And to say, I don't have answers and I don't have this and I don't have that. But the one thing that my youngest said was, you know, it's it's real important to communicate communicate about this stuff. And I was like, yeah, it is. Which is another piece of the problem between us is it's not, you don't, he doesn't want to communicate with me, my husband, that's not his thing. He said to me the other day, it's not his thing. Well, you can't really work through stuff if you don't communicate. So those are two pieces that that we're struggling with.
0: But so I think that's a really important point because there is kind of an epidemic of bad communication in marriages. There's an epidemic of bad communication specifically on emotional topics coming from the males in our society and the fact that you are modeling for your kids the importance of communication to the point that your child echoed it back to you. You said talking to the kids about the separation was really, really hard. I can imagine it was, but it's also necessary. And you're not only setting them up for success because they're going to have hopefully a childhood that's got a little bit more peace and calm in it, but also because hopefully they'll be in a position to not accept situations that don't include real emotional communication in their adult lives because they're witnessing you uh, communicating with them, so I, I just think that's so so important. Thank you for sharing your story, Kelly. Thank you to all of you. Um, I'm curious. We have such different time frames on the call. I also do want to mention to our audio listening audience. You know, we only publish the audio file for these roundtable conversations. Are going to
1: note the head shaking?
0: Yes. It?
1: Yes. When Kelly was speaking the last few sentences about that nervous system regulation and the kids like kind of are coming out of the woodwork and you're all like even being calm. Like, I mean, even the dog is probably calmer in the house, right? And the cat's not hiding. Like all of you are shaking your heads. And I'm like, that should be a testament.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's gone on throughout the podcast. I wish we got to find a way to have like a little drum beat in the background, and when everybody's heads are shaking, it's, where it's like a snare drum going crazy, so that uh, <laughs> yeah. the listeners can understand that the the whole panel is weighing in in a positive way. I'm curious, though, with the different time frames and different experiences that you've all had, does anyone regret not making the move towards separation sooner? Absolutely. No, right. Okay. Yes, great.
3: I do. I wish I had had the courage. And the confidence to do this three years ago when things started deteriorating, I wish I had realized that I was doing us no favors by waiting this out. And I wish I had tried to write this ship much earlier. Um, even my husband said to me, I didn't even really know anything was wrong. And it's true. He didn't. Because the things I would say, I would say so gently so as to not evoke irrational responses and to keep the peace that I wasn't really communicating at all. So I was completely ineffectual, but completely stressed out for the last three years. Whereas if I'd just taken this step then, um, not knowing it, I thought I was you know, setting the stage to potentially end everything we have, which was, wasn't what I wanted, but actually is leading us towards our only chance at recovery. So yes, I wish I had done this three years ago when I first started journaling and noticing that, hey, something's going the way I don't want it to go.
0: Yeah, thank you. Any Anybody else want to respond to that one?
4: I feel opposite most of the time of like, oh my gosh, I wish it wouldn't have been such a dramatic um, separation. But I'm also, you know, three and a half years in, I'm thankful for it because I would have just been sitting and dealing and not healing and my kids would have not had, you know, secure attachments like they have now. And, um, you know, I, I feel like I'm so thankful that it happened when my kids were babies. Um, and that I didn't have to live with it longer and you know going back to your question too of like do I do I um, get the question of why am I not divorcing and like I feel like okay I'm like in my mom era right now I have two little kids and I'm focused on them I'm focused on me and my career and my health and um, you know I might not have like a secure partner but I have a somewhat partner who's not drunk all the time, which is way better than it was before.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So interesting. I um, Please go ahead.
2: Wish. Um, so when my husband's first relapse, um, after I knew that he was an alcoholic, um, we did like a two week in-house separation and it was just me dealing with anger. Um, That was not long enough. That was absolutely not long enough. He'll tell you now, because he stayed sober for quite some time after that. But it wasn't enough to get him. He was not recovering. He was not drinking. He was not doing anything to actually recover himself. And my taking him back, and I wasn't recovering either. I continued to walk on eggshells. I I guess. I guess, enabled in a way. I'm so scared that anything I breathed would send him spiraling again. And even when I would share the pain, he, because he wasn't doing his recovery, he didn't know how to take, you know, the resentment processing and the stuff that I was attempting to do. Um, not even knowing those terms, because again, I wasn't in my own recovery. I was just, you know, like, <laughs> um, but yeah, he, now he will tell, he will admit that I let him back into our bedroom too soon. Um, he, he did not, he was not scared enough, even though at the time he said he was, he was not scared enough of losing me. And that also allowed him to then relapse 18 months later because he's like, she's never going to leave me. And, you know, now in the not mindset he's in right now, he can admit that we'll see. It's only five months. You know, (laughs) I don't trust anything yet. But um, I definitely wish that I had separated sooner, or at least withheld the in-house separation sooner. I think the physical separation recently, absolutely, I needed it. Um, but I don't know that I knew that much two years ago. I don't. I don't think I was ready for it. Or I don't know. I've I've had to do a lot of growth and healing myself
0: i'm glad you brought up the in-house separation that is a strategy that we we have met lots of people for whom that has been successful it sounds like the duration you know two weeks isn't long enough for paint to fully dry necessarily and uh, certainly wasn't wasn't long enough but there but there are we did we didn't um we don't have anyone on the podcast necessarily that has had long-term success with just you know moving into different parts of the house but I do know that that is a strategy that can be effective. And, you know, I'm wondering, that kind of leads into a question that I have. One of the reasons that Sherry and I, you know, I said on the episode 213, the one preceding this part one of this discussion that I just absolutely would not have tolerated a separation and I got sober to avoid a separation. Um, one of the the reasons was uh, how stigmatized it is. I would have been embarrassed if we had separated. Was that something that any of you dealt with the the idea that if we're living in two separate places, people are going to find out all of a sudden our private business becomes public business? Was that a concern for any of you?
2: Yeah, I think, it was for me. Yeah, Sorry, Shannon, go ahead.
5: Oh, I was just going to say, I think for me, it, I at that point, I my my story was out there he was very much keeping everything a secret i we've been separated six months now and i'm still not sure that his parents know so it's kind of one of those situations where he just you know secrecy is a huge part of all of that for him
0: wow but that that was a concern for you nicole
2: It was. Um, and more so for him, I think, but, you know, I wondered like even the neighbors that they didn't see his car here for months, you know, or they would see it show up in the middle of the day, but they knew it wasn't here at night. Um, and, and then like at church, you know, we used to prominently sit together and then for months we went to different services and I know that was noticed, but you know, polite society, nobody asked me and I always, uh, now I'm less concerned, but over the, the physical separation months, I was kind of, I probably kept to myself more than I would have otherwise um, in the community because I didn't want to be asked about it. I wasn't ready yeah. to talk about it with anybody because I didn't know what was going I have no idea. I don't even know now what's going to happen.
0: <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a tribute to you that you pushed through even, even with those concerns and did what you knew was right for you and your family. What about Kelly, with you being the newest, uh, Mm -hmm. we're in the same week of separation having this conversation. What about Mm -hmm. the, I mean, I would love to hear if you have a response to the stigma piece, but also I think a lot of people in society, myself included, have spent the majority of my life thinking separation is just step one toward divorce. Once you're, it's like a roller coaster. Once you're going downhill, you can't stop the momentum. And so, Kelly, I'm curious, um, did you or or is your husband's reaction one that is, you know, we're doing this thing now, but this just means divorce down the road and there's no there's no stopping once we've started?
6: Um, That's an interesting question, because, I mean, I think the what I said to him was, you know, I'm detaching, you're continuing to drink. And that's two things moving in the opposite directions very, very fast. Um, But I looked at this saying we I'm doing this and asking for this space to save us, hopefully, because if we stay together, we might hate each other. We might make this a thousand times worse. And he had asked me, you know, "Okay, so I'm gone 90 days. Maybe I don't drink and then we get back. But then what? And, you know, I had said to him, like, there are issues to work on. It is that house, the plumbing issues, the the, I say this all the time, the insulation issues, but the house is on fire. So we've got to put out the fire first and then we can come back and address the other issues. And he did say to me too, which I found interesting, um, uh, he's, he said, I don't deal well with um, ultimatums. And I had to make it incredibly clear, this is not an ultimatum. You can go drink, you cannot drink, you can do whatever you want. I have to have this space. This is all about me. And if he were to look to me tomorrow and say, I want a divorce, I would say, okay, it's, it's that thing where you've done all you can do. You you put your hands up in the air and you say, this, this is the next necessary right thing to do. Is it quote unquote, a separation? Would I tell my parents that that's what it is? Not necessarily. I would say, I just need space. I need time. I need to think I need to breathe. I need to feel, I just need to be.
0: Well, a a great way to shield yourself from the stigma associated with with labels like separation or divorce is to not name it that thing. Stay away from the stigmatized word. So I love that you're doing that. I also like your response, really like your response to what happens after 90 days. Um, I think that is acknowledgement of the fact that sobriety doesn't solve any of the problems, but it is a prerequisite. And so your analogy of the house is on fire. So why are we talking about the plumbing um, is a really good one. Lisa, come on back in.
3: Yeah, uh, Kelly, I just wanted to echo that. To be honest, for me, um, the whole idea of separation, I could have never taken that step, step if I hadn't already come to terms with the fact that this might end in divorce. And once I got to the point where that was a possible reality and I was no longer afraid of it, then I had the power to take the stand to try to heal our marriage. Until I no longer feared the consequences and fallout of divorce, I couldn't have taken this step. So yeah, Matt, I agree. Separation could be a first step of divorce, or it could just be acknowledging that you're to the point where you have nothing more to
1: lose.
5: Yeah, I totally agree with that.
1: Mm -hmm.
5: Yeah, the fear held me back for so long.
1: Yeah, I I couldn't
6: echo that anymore. I had to get to the point where I'm like, I have nothing to lose. I've lost everything. The only thing I can do is this, and this is the only thing that might save us.
0: Yeah. It's, it's the, it's the next right move in your uh, work of detachment. I think detachment sometimes gets a bad name. I don't understand what detaching with love even means um, unless it's meant for love (laughs) for yourself, because. Um, all the steps that you take in that emotional and then eventually physical detachment uh, is, is all about protecting yourself and your kids and prioritizing yourself. And so um, maybe dropping the labels and, but acknowledging um, that the moves you're making are the right moves for you and you're willing to accept the consequences. Um, That's a a great kind of note to end on, I think. Thank you all so much for being here Uh, therapy session. Number two on uh, Matt's hypocrisy about talking about extreme detachment slash separation. Your stories were really, really, really impactful. I love the variety in them, um, but the common thread that ran through, and I hope our listeners, I know our listeners will get a lot out of this. Thank you all for being a part of the intoxicated podcast. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved
1: an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org.
0: If you are a high functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org.
1: No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org.
0: For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.